Hello and welcome to Episode 7 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. For co-host Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb. Today, we have an especially long episode to share with you because it basically consists of two parts that we wanted you to have access to all at once. Our primary guests for this episode are Philosophy of Education Society President Michelle Moses and Winston Thompson. The first part of today's show is an interview with the two of them conducted by Kara and I about Michelle's presidential address delivered at the PES meeting in early March of 2023 and the response to it that Winston gave. Speaking personally, for me, it was an enlightening look into the writing and thinking processes of two people I deeply admire, and I hope you find it equally illuminating. And then, the second part of the episode is the presidential address and the response together, as delivered in the Adams Room of the Palmer House Hotel. 2023 program chair Terry Wilson gives a lovely introduction of Michelle and Winston, and then the two of them take it away. We thought about publishing the interview and the addresses separately, but why make the audience wait? Without further ado, let us begin with our interview of Michelle and Winston. So hi, you guys. We are here today. Not only is me and Kara together in a room, which is amazing, we're here with uh, the president of PES, Michelle Moses, and with Winston Thompson, who was also on uh, episode one. So lovely to see you guys, first of all. Great to see you. It's great to be back. Yeah, awesome. So we're talking today about Michelle's presidential address, largely. And I was just curious, well, as I was thinking about questions to ask for this, what it is like to be the president of this organization, to specifically how to choose a theme, and then like how does one respond to the theme that one has chosen? I'm asking that abstractly, but like very directly, why this theme, and what was it like? What was the experience of sort of like debating that? What to what to make the conference about? Great. Yeah, that's that is a key question when uh, you get notified that you've been selected for the honor of the presidency. Well, the philosophy of education society, we all know, is a small, sort of intimate organization. Um, and it serves as the intellectual and scholarly home um, for many, many philosophers of education. And so when, when I was thinking about the theme, when I was discussing um, with Terry Wilson, program chair, you know, what might be compelling and engaging not only for you know, our longtime members, but for newer folks who might, you know, find it interesting and want to attend the conference and join our community. It, it just felt obvious to us, um, given the, the socio-political moment that we are in, um, that we wanted to connect to democratic education in some way, and the importance of democratic education um, during a moment where we are seeing not only in K-12 education and university education, but in society more generally, um, the, the decline of democracy, um, as well as pointed uh, attacks on democratic ideals like diversity, like equality, um, and freedom. Um, and so, that's that's really what what got us going on on this particular theme. Awesome. And so, like, so what was it like? Did you have this paper that you have written sort of in mind when you uh, selected the theme, or were you like, this is what I want to talk about, and now I have to figure out how to write about it? So, great question. Um, I think I've had this paper in 
mind and maybe um, on my heart for a bunch of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is is in response to um, kind of the, the, the changes that I've seen over the course of my career in academia, in higher education. Um, and so I knew what I wanted to write about. Um, what was difficult was narrowing down um, to make it into a more or less coherent paper because there were too many things, and these are big issues, and they're so weighty. You know, democracy, right? That's not not just in the purview of ph- philosophers of education. Um, so thinking about, you know, what do I want to narrow in on about this particular very large, very complex and difficult issue in the time that we're in right now, um, that, that was the hardest part. And as poor Winston knows, you know, it took me way longer to write this paper than it should have. Um, so I'm hearing that yeah. deadlines don't apply to the presidents. Deadlines, <laughs> deadlines do apply to the president if the president wants to be a good colleague <laughs> and share their paper with their respondent in a timely manner so the respondent has time to write a response. Mm. Michelle, can I pull you back to two elements of it kind of related to deadlines? Um, and then I want to hear from you, Winston. Um, you use the phrase in your paper, um, this has been on my mind and heart for quite a while, and clearly it is because you've repeated that phrase, and this is what keeps me up at night. Um, And then you mentioned that it took you a really long time to write this paper, even though you've been wanting to write this paper for a really long time. And, you know, the former graduate student in me is thinking, like, so what does it mean to be writing things from my heart, and why do some things take so long? Would you be able to talk just a little bit about why you think this process was so important and so challenging? God, that's such a great question. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think I've been the kind of philosopher throughout my career who's written about things that are really personal to me in addition to what I have thought are you know, important for education in general. And I think um, part of the reason that this one felt particularly tricky uh, is because you know what is happening in schools of education and in universities, um, you know, have been foremost right on my mind and in my day-to-day experience. And so, wanting to take the time to get it as as right as I could when it's a messy, complicated topic when you're talking you know, from the perspective of someone who my whole career I've written about racial inequality and injustice and how education and higher education in particular, um, you know, can can have policies and practices that can mitigate those inequalities. So from that perspective, thinking about, you know, what is happening sort of on my own political side of things, in addition to what's happening um, you know, on the far, what I call the far extremist right, that felt especially hard. I'm used to writing about you know, things like what's happening in Florida and um, 
you know, threats to diversity and equality in education. What I'm not used to writing about is how some of that anti-democratic um, impulses might be coming from my own political side. That's fascinating. That's so great. And with that in mind, I'm, and we have not heard this paper yet because you're not giving it for a couple of days, but we, and knowing how hard it was to get it down to like 4,500 words, would you mind just <laughs> taking us through the argument uh, a little bit? Oh, would that it would be only 4,500 words. <laughs> <laughs> so sure. Um, so what, I, what I've written about is, well, the title is Democracy, Extremism, and the Crisis of Truth in Education. And I focus specifically on higher education and the university because that's really my main area of study. Um, and and what, what I wanted to write about was this sense that there, there are these um, unreasonable extremes on both ends of the political spectrum. And I'm not saying that they're monolithic in any way, um, but just conceptually in order to think about that, that there are these extremes that are getting in the way of democracy and democratic education and the way we um, want to be preparing, right, informed democratic participants, you know, after, after uh, they graduate from college. And so thinking about that, thinking about the, the relationship that those extreme, dogmatic, unreasonable views have with truth or with quote unquote post-truth as people are talking about our society, which, uh, that's awful. Um, and, and how, you know, that matters, right, for what we as many, you know, philosophers of education are trying to do in terms of, you know, educating kind of the, the future generation, I guess. And so, um, again, you know, as I said just, just a minute ago, you know, I can really think about and wrap my mind around the anti-democratic, um, totalitarian impulses on the very far right. Um, what's harder, and why I think this took me such a long time to write, is wrapping my mind around how I want to talk about, you know, um, fairly, analytically, and in a nuanced way, the anti-democratic impulses on the very far extremist left, um, knowing that, you know, doing so would be taking a risk because sort of in the um, political climate we're in right now, it's very easy to for one's words to get taken out of context or made into a soundbite um, that then, you know, could paint me in a light in which I don't want to be painted. Well, thank God you're coming on this podcast for that <laughs> reason. It's very public. Well, let me ask you, uh, that's fascinating. I'm so excited to hear the talk in general. As the president, working closely with the uh, program chair, Terry Wilson, and this is a great way to transition, you chose Winston to uh, be your respondent. Uh, how did that, uh, how did, why? 
It's <laughs> basically what I'm asking. No offense to Winston, sure. obviously. <laughs> Winston is incredibly thoughtful. I think um, I've known him for quite some time and have gotten in some different capacities to engage with his work in a substantive way. And I think, um, I thought, I think that, you know, he would take the, take the time to grapple with these ideas um, and write a very generative and generous and productive response because that is who he is. And so that that's why, I mean, he was the very first person I thought of, the very first person that I asked. I was so relieved when he said yes. Um, and, you know, I quite honestly, you know, he was kind enough to let me see the response and it just felt perfect. I mean, I had said like, uh, you know, the paper, I know that I needed to do more in the paper about, okay, so what do we do about all these hard problems? And that's exactly what Winston took up, and it was just wonderful to, to see that. That's fantastic. Hey, what, and what a great... So, Winston, would you care to share with us what a perfect response is like? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I can share that, but I do uh, first want to uh, just thank you, Michelle, for that, that very warm and kind uh, statement of my, my, my suitability for this task, which it was just such an honor. I, when, when I was you know, approached by you uh, and asked to, uh, uh, to perform this role, uh, I was uh, in that moment so touched and have continued to, uh, to feel uh, uh, that sense of honor throughout the experience of uh, crafting the response. I'll say a few words, um, you know, recognizing as uh, things were contextualized earlier that there may be folks listening who uh, may have questions about how to go about writing something like this, uh, how to go about responding to someone's written work, and um, just sort of picking up on some of the threads that Michelle articulated. I, I do think it's really important in responses uh, to do uh, uh, to offer um, uh, remarks that. Um, that elevate the work, right? I mean, so Michelle's work is uh, fantastic and doesn't need my hand to elevate it. But um, you could imagine that there are some folks who view a response as sort of, um, you know, a, a, a statement that's at, at odds or at tension or um, in some ways uh, uh, pushing against what has been said by uh, the speaker or the writer of the main paper. Uh, and that's never how I've thought about uh, responses. And I encourage... Uh, those listening, whether they be graduate students or uh, early career folks, or even senior folks who are uh, in need of a reminder that um, you know uh, a response, yeah, <laughs> a response is uh, just as Michelle said, meant to um, be generative uh, above all else. It's meant to um, uh, sort of allow the audience um, an entry point into some of what has been offered in the main paper. And again, Michelle's uh, uh, paper here um, is just, it's breathtakingly um, uh, 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 far-ranging in the amount of things that she takes into account and she considers and she weighs and she's so careful in doing all of this that my work was really you know, cut out for me uh, in thinking about how to respond because my intuition was um, 
you know, to respond to all of it. Uh, everything that I thought was interesting and exciting and I wanted to uh, uh, pull, out, uh, pull this out and sort of uh, elevate this and highlight that. Um, but, you know, as, as, as Derek mentioned earlier, you know, there's a word count. And so thinking about that word count, thinking about uh, how to be productive um, uh, and generative with the opportunity, um, that was what uh, really um, uh, led me forward. And, you know, Michelle uh, uh, said that she wished that she'd gotten the paper to me earlier. I, I don't feel that at all, and I'm on the record here as saying that Michelle uh, did a wonderful job and, ma and managed the deadlines well. Um, and so I had, I had a good amount of time to think about exactly what I wanted to do uh, in crafting a response that really, again, as Michelle suggested, took seriously where the, the, the paper sort of ends, and it ends with what I interpret um, Michelle is doing is sort of offering an invitation to philosophers of education to engage in grappling with these really difficult questions that are inescapable in this moment and uh, ought to be prioritized uh, as urgent in a situation of a deteriorating democratic context. Thank you. So just before uh, I throw it over to Kara to get into the actual meat of it, let me follow up on the process of writing a response. Thank you so much for saying all that stuff that is gonna be super useful to, uh, especially graduate student and early career folks and everybody else about uh, the sort of spirit in which you did things. Um, in terms of the process of writing a response, in, to someone you deeply respect about something you have a lot of thoughts about, what was that like? This question is coming from a place where like, yeah. I sought out somebody to respond to at this uh, sure. thing because like, we're, I'm. I feel so, I'm very much in the same sort of world. And for the first time, I was like, okay, this can only be 1,500 or 1,700 words. Sure. And like, I was like, I'll just like write out a draft and see where I am. And I'm like, okay, now I need to get this down from 6,000. So like, sure. how am I going to sure. do that? What was, what was your process yeah, like? Yeah, so, um, so a thing that I don't like to do uh, personally is to write a lot and then try to compress it. I find Super that to be, um, yes. to be a challenge and it feels as though I'm sort of, yeah, it, it's like it's like giving away a part of my my soul, right? I, you pour so much of yourself into something. So what I like to do is I like to uh, work on an outline that I spend time with, uh, sit with, uh, rehearse it, you know, in the shower, in the elevator, on the bus, uh, into the office, and just kind of go through that outline. And over the course of you know a, a fixed amount of time, try to refine that outline before I really give myself over to the writing. Uh, for me, um, I try to separate as much as possible my thinking from my writing. So planning and doing, uh, I try to separate. It, it was really important for me to uh, consider the word count here and the limitations of the venue in crafting my outline, sitting with that outline, uh, and then once I felt comfortable with uh, the direction that I had and a, a sense of uh, precisely how many words I could sort of spend on each uh, subtopic, uh, then engaging in the writing. Thanks. That's super useful for me as well. <laughs> sure. Okay. So thank you both. And thank you for both a sense of the topic and also a sense of your process. As I was listening to both of you, I was thinking how so much in the way that I hear how you wrote this, Michelle, and then how you responded it to it feels like it speaks to some of the goals of the paper. And I'm going to speak that back a little bit and try to make it a question in the end. Sure. <laughs> Maybe it'll be a provocation. Um, I see much of this paper about truth-telling. Um, 
And that in truth telling, thinking about Foucault, you're thinking about what is true. And there's an element of this is true to me. It's not true to me in terms of this relativism, but true to me in the sense of it matters. It keeps me up at night. I have to do justice to somebody else's work. Um, So I'm hearing that in your paper, this commitment to that truth. Um, I also heard a lot in your paper, Michelle, about risk. And that was then picked up on by Winston, that it was risky to to write in a way, that there was a risk in talking both to those who have a different perspective, but maybe those who you t- typically feel aligned with, um, that there was personal risk at the end of your paper in terms of connecting it to sort of your own experience and why this feels so high stakes for you. Um, and then I was really interested in Winston, your line, um, that you say, I want to point out how high the stakes might feel. Again, I was hearing this sort of riskiness in a democracy when inquiry is understood as only about settling and unsettling truth. And in my mind, both what you were doing in your paper and then your attempt at response, or not your attempt, your fantastic response, Winston, it kind of gives a different way for thinking about how we tell truth and also how we respond to truth. That, um, doesn't have to be this takedown. So I don't know if I ended in a question, ended in a question, but that's what I'm hearing in both of you. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know that that was a question. I'll make a joke and say <laughs> I try really hard not to think about Foucault, but um, mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry, that's okay. Um, so you talked about truth telling mm-hmm. and the importance of that, and I think. For me, it's a balance between truth-telling and truth-seeking. And part of what I love about philosophy and philosophy of education and our society is that there's there's a lot of truth-seeking and there is a lot of dialogue. And so the way we set up the papers and the responses, Mm -hmm. as well as the symposium or alternative sessions, even the works in progress sessions at the conference, are all about um, dialogue and um, connection together and and working together to, to sharpen our ideas and see things that, as individuals, you know, we might not see and, and, you know, in the end, make our work all the better for that. And so um, I don't know that I'm answering a particular question, but it, it, it is true that um, kind of the, the back and forth uh, discussions, conversations, the way we communicate, um, you know, is indicative of what I am hoping, right, to, to see more of from the university. Yeah, and I'll just sort of add to that that I think, you know, what's really uh, interesting to me about the um, the truth-seeking function of the work that happens in universities is that we often describe the work that we're doing as, you know, inquiry, right? We're inquiring into a matter. We're engaged in collective inquiry. We're trying to, again, collectively, uh, together, uh, uh, incrementally in some, in some ways, uh, uh, advance uh, truth. I think one of the things that I picked up on and tried to articulate in my uh, response is that 
You know, that's, that's one of the things that we're doing when we're engaged in the sort of work that we engage when we are uh, in university spaces. But I think we could also, you know, engineer the concept of inquiry, and I, I uh, make reference to some really terrific work by a philosopher named uh, Avery Archer um, about um, the way that we think about, about, about this concept of inquiry. And I suggest, following Archer, that you know, rather than only thinking about inquiry as moving towards uh, truth, we can also we can think about inquiry with uh, an improved epistemic standing uh, sort of um, uh, conceptualization. And effectively, this means that um, you know, when when a person is inquiring about some matter Q, what they're doing is they're improving their epistemic standing relative to that matter Q, right? And so that I think could allow for some breathing room uh, in some of these contentious uh, political um, uh, contexts within which uh, it can feel to people that um, inquiry is uh, a threat, right? You're, gonna, you're going to inquire about this issue that is already settled. We know the truth, right? You're going to inquire about this issue about which I hold strong views. My values come into play here. Uh, I feel attacked, right? And so uh, what's really great about um, Michelle's uh, address is that she sort of lays out how a lot of these things are occurring, and I, I, I've attempted to kind of engage with that to suggest that you know that affect, uh, that 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 feeling of um, you know inquiry being this zero sum game in which uh, you know uh, a gain for you is a loss for me. Um, that could be true in some context, but I think if we are, um, we as philosophers of education, if we're thoughtful and strategic about um, uh, building up ideas like this improved epistemic standing uh, approach to uh, thinking about inquiry, inquiry takes on a very different feel, right? It's not the case that we are um, uh, uh, combatants. It's not the case that we are uh, attempting to uh, engage in an activity that means that there's a winner and a loser, but rather there's some value here, even if we're not creating, not necessarily creating new knowledge, and there's some value in inquiring, even if uh, uh, we hold uh, uh, convictions about the matter uh, into which we're inquiring. That process of uh, sharing uh, justifications with one another, holding up these justifications, these arguments, these um, uh, perspectives, is still valuable in a way that I think has been obscured in the uh, current political context. Winston, can you give me just an example of improved epistemic um, like standing? standing yeah. Because I'm trying to picture that a little bit more. Absolutely. So. Um, uh, one example that I could give uh, comes, you know, from my personal life. I have two small children, and they often ask me questions about which they know the answer, right? Um, but what they're asking is they're not attempting, uh, I think, they're not attempting to inquire about these issues to find a new answer. I mean, in some cases they are, right? I've given them an answer they don't they don't want. Um, but in, in, in many cases, what they're trying to do in these moments of asking questions is they're trying to uh, figure out how they relate to this information, to this content, to this, uh, 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 um, yeah, to this epistemic um, uh, object. They're attempting to sort of uh, think through the justifications, to think through the uh, the evidence. They're um, uh, aligning themselves uh, to uh, the reasons that they have for uh, believing that a certain thing is true, right? I mean, 
this is now you know part of the conversation that uh, one of my children uh, is having about uh, you know um, making uh, determinations of uh, the genders of other people, right? So um, you know he, I could imagine believes that he knows the genders of uh, the folks around him who have disclosed their gender to him, but he finds himself often asking questions, right? Well, how do I know? Couldn't it be the case that, right? And so his conclusions aren't changing, but his relationship to the knowledge, uh, to the content, uh, is improved because he's had this experience of inquiring and inquiring again and inquiring with uh, his, his parents, inquiring with his classmates, et cetera. That's really helpful. One of the, I, I just want to quickly break in and be like, if there is ever going to be like an elementary age school child who's going to be, who's going to ask the question legitimately, could it be the case that it is definitely going to be? <laughs> Let me tell you, yeah, uh, my, yeah, my first grader says that often. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Sorry, Michelle. No, so I, I'm interested in making a connection between this idea of epistemic standing mm -hmm. and um, something our, our colleague Brian Warnick has written about, epistemic humility. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about this, um, and I feel like this idea or these ideas connect with some of my earlier work on affirmative action mm -hmm. and defending affirmative action yeah. for a variety of reasons. And um, Derek had been, you know, had, had mentioned, like, oh, I wonder how this new yeah. stuff is connected, mm -hmm. right, with some of your, your old stuff. Um, and, it, and, and it really made me think, because really what I've been arguing for in defending affirmative action policies for a long time is this idea that diverse perspectives, diverse people, diverse faculty, researchers, students, et cetera, within the university are important for many different reasons. There are different rationales, right? Mm -hmm. Social justice, we also have remedial rationales, yep. economic rationales, mm -hmm. um, but really the epistemic rationale is super compelling to me, right? Mm -hmm. When thinking about the mission Right, yeah. of the university, knowledge production, the pursuit of truth, yeah. discovery, epistemic humility sure. and epistemic standing for me yeah. uh, connect with kind of the critical needs that we have in inquiry, in science, yeah. in ethics for diverse human beings to be engaged in those endeavors. It is my belief that the just to take science, right? The science is better, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. When you have women in the room, absolutely. With the men, when you have transgender folks in the room, absolutely. When you have black people and Latina people and people of all yeah. you know races and ethnicities, because different epistemic positions are likely to come out. And I think that um, above many other arguments really, you know, speaks to me around inquiry, around policies like affirmative action, which you know, sure. are, are, are <laughs> like soon to RIP. be in the news right. again. Uh -huh. yeah. um, that's so fascinating. I'm, 
it's so fascinating. I'm literally saying this out loud to make a note for myself because I'm not literally writing, but this could like, I've been fascinated by like your connection of epistemic standing and epistemic humility. I just want to be like thinking about my own work. I'm like, what if we just dropped epistemic and we just talked about standing and humility in a more <laughs> existential way? That's the note. I'm not asking you to respond to that. <laughs> I'm just saying it so I don't forget it. Fascinating. And especially the, the quality of that response in terms of the fact that it's a live question, again, by a lot of like center-left thinkfluencers like Yasha Monk, for instance, who are legitimately asking the question again, uh, is diversity our strength mm. and in what way? And are unable to form, in my view, unable to form a, a very good answer to that. And so the ability to come up with a good answer to that seems very important. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you are uh, doing this work. That's all. This wasn't in your paper, Winston, but building on what, this wasn't the focus of your paper, but I know you think a lot about it. In hearing what you were saying, Michelle, I am thinking about how it's not simply all being in the same space together, but that there's certain conditions. And I think, Winston, I know that you think a lot about what conditions of spaces lead to improved opportunities for epistemic humility, for example. Could you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, so I, I guess one way of answering that question in the context of the conversation that we're having at the moment would be to think about how uh, higher educational institutions not only create um, what we might think of as, you know, sort of quantitative, uh, you know, uh, diversity, but create real qualitative diversity. So as Michelle was, uh, uh, was mentioning, right, I mean, it's important to have people in the rooms, right? But it's, so that's, that's necessary. That's not sufficient, right? Uh, you've got to also have uh, people, uh, um, you've got to have uh, procedures in place that allow for uh, these voices and perspectives to not only be heard, but to receive uptake, right? You've got to have uh, structures in place that uh, give folks uh, avenues of redress if uh, those things aren't happening, right? So, um, you know, uh, rather than sort of uh, suggesting very particular policies that I think ought to be in place at all universities, um, I'll just sort of uh, leave things at that level and say that the university space, I think, stands as a model in many ways for the political space more broadly, right? So um, earlier this year at my own university, I gave a, a university-wide lecture um, uh, in a soon-to-be series. Uh, it's the first instance of this series, but it's going to happen uh, into the future uh, in perpetuity every year. Uh, but the series is called uh, The Education for Citizenship Lecture. It's sort of trading on the uh, motto of uh, the Ohio State University. And in it, I uh, articulated that there's an overlap, uh, that there is uh, some coherence between the virtues of scholarship and the virtues of citizenship. Um, they're not, of course, identical, but there is an overlap in that. What it means to be a good scholar, right? So you might think of yourself as a member of a university com community in which you remain curious, you're uh, responsive to good reasons, to evidence, and so forth, right? You are a student, you're a good scholar, right? To have those virtues um, uh, is somewhat similar to the sorts of virtues that we want people to have in civic uh, context. We want people to be curious about, um, you know, the experiences of others. We want people to be responsive to, um, uh, to evidence, to good argument. Uh, we want people to be collaborative. We want, I mean, so, so 
I think that uh, the university, um, uh, particularly in this moment in which uh, so much of uh, the civic context feels um, uh, 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 fraught with uh, risk, the university is something of a, um, a model, safer than other spaces, for having some of those difficult conversations, uh, for uh, uh, um, engaging with perspectives that might be challenging. Uh, and hopefully, if the university can do a better job of embodying and modeling uh, what this can look like, the wider society uh, can follow suit in some good ways. Michelle, what do you, uh, what do you, how, how does that interact with? Oh, gosh. Your, it's a general, I'm just, yeah. That was a lot. Yeah, um, for sure. And, and really, actually, beautifully said and important. And I guess it, what it makes me think about, and this is how I kind of end, um, you know, the, the conference paper, is really how, you know, how do we as philosophers of education, how, we, how do we navigate the contradictions and the complexity, right, in all these really important questions about education. How do we live in those spaces of uncertainty and conflict um, and, and maybe sort of more personally in terms of like where I am in my own career, um, I'm actually in the university administration. I have scare quotes going here. Um, but how, how do I, as a critical scholar, how do I critique the university and how do I love it at mm -hmm. the same time, you know? And yeah. so those are, those are the, the things that this is all bringing up for me at this moment. It's fascinating. Well, thank you guys very much for taking the time. I know that one of the limitations of doing this live, I mean, it's wonderful to do it, <laughs> not on Zoom, but like one of the limitations is that we have to go do stuff sure. uh, at the end of this. So, I, and I just wanna close by saying that I'm so excited that you have chosen this topic for the presidential lecture. Uh, by the time this comes out, the like next year's theme will have been announced already, but it's going to. I, I really look forward to seeing people respond to what you say in a in the context of a theme that is about information and misinformation. So like that is going to be very very exciting. I hope that uh, this paper and this response get a ton of uptake and uh, critical thought. So thank you for for coming here and sharing that a, a little preview with us. Thank you both so much. Yeah, thank you very much for organizing this. And now, with that wonderful thinking in the background, we can turn it over to Terry Wilson's warm introduction of these two speakers, and then we can hear the paper and the response of which Michelle and Winston were just speaking. in just a second, so come on in. This is even a little too tall for me, but we'll see. All right, well, welcome everyone. Thank you for being here today. Um, and I get the really exciting task of being able to introduce our speakers today, starting with our wonderful 2023 PES president, Michelle Moses. Michelle is a professor in the School of Education at University of Colorado Boulder, and she also serves as our campus, our campus as Vice Provost and Associate Vice Chancellor for Faculty Affairs. 
Michelle studies how educational policies intersect with and shape equality of opportunity. She's the author of Embracing Race, Why We Need Race-Conscious Educational Policy, and also Living with Moral Disagreement, um, the Enduring Controversy over affirmative action, about affirmative action. In these books and her other publications, her work has explored several race-conscious education policies, including bilingual education, remedial education, and affirmative action. Michelle not only defends such policies in accordance with egalitarian principles of justice, but she analyzes the roots of the moral disagreements surrounding race-conscious policies and explores the factors that both shape and constrain public deliberation about education policy. Here, Michelle's work moves creatively back and forth between the details of policy, including the details of legislation and anti-affirmative action ballot initiatives, and broader theories of justice and democracy, illustrating the synergy found when philosophy engages the world. These commitments have led her to embrace a variety of creative research methods, from deliberative dialogues to media analyses. Michelle's work brings together all these diverse sources to explore the fundamental and fundamentally moral disagreements that lie beneath the surface of contentious debates about racial injustice. More recently, she's been exploring political strategies to dismantle affirmative action in higher education admissions, what it means to opt out of public education, and controversies over free speech and diversity of viewpoints on college campuses. Among all this, Michelle has been a Fulbright New Century Scholar, she is a fellow of the American Educational Research Association, and she was awarded our CU Boulder's Hazel Barnes Prize, which is our most prestigious faculty honor and one that recognizes the enriching interrelationship between teaching and research. I think this award particularly celebrates the clear and powerful ideal of equal opportunity that runs almost seamlessly through Michelle's scholarship, teaching, and service. In addition to her scholarship, this ideal has shaped her commitment to building collaborative and inclusive spaces for student learning and faculty growth. I know on our own campus, Michelle's played an integral role in supporting students, particularly students of color, and navigating the challenges of higher education. She's also supported faculty in our School of Education and now across campus through mentorship programs and through clear and fair guidelines for tenure and promotion. I think above all else, Michelle is someone who cares deeply for her scholarly communities, including those of us here at PES where she served in countless other roles in addition to being this year's president. Her latest effort to assemble a presidential task force on conference and community and to think together about how we can sustain and reimagine our community in the years to come are only one illustration of her stewardship and care. And I think somehow Michelle manages to do all this, scholarship, powerful teaching, meaningful service, with a sense of warmth and generosity. Um, I know myself and many of us know in this, in this room that she is a true mentor and a very good friend. So after Michelle's address, we'll hear a response from Winston Thompson. Winston is an associate professor of philosophy of education and associate professor of philosophy at The Ohio State University. His scholarship focuses, <laughs> his scholarship focuses on ethical and political questions of justice and has analyzed questions of civic education ethics of punishment and how we might understand educational rather than only political justice. Please join me in welcoming our speakers today.
really am. <laughs> For Veep fans, this is not lost on me. Okay. So good morning, everyone. Um, I was thinking about my first PES conference when I was a doc student, still pretty new to philosophy as a discipline. I have to admit, it was an intimidating group. All those Illinois students who seem to know everyone and everything, all those receptions and big name professors whose work I had been reading. And just, you know, for a touchstone, Harvey Siegel was president that year. It was my advisor, Ken Howe, who encouraged me to join PES and who introduced me to warm and welcoming colleagues like Bob Floden, Audrey Thompson, don't know where they are, but I would look at them. Um, Cal Alston, and of course the inimitable Nell Noddings, whose presence we miss most acutely this year. I never dreamed that I would get to be president of PES, but here we are. And I think, I think, I don't know for sure, that I may even be the first Latina PES president. I really couldn't be more, more thrilled. First, I have to give huge kudos and thanks to Terry Wilson. Yeah, yeah. For the incredible, inclusive, and innovative program that we have this year. I knew, so I'm going to take credit because I knew <laughs> that she would be an amazing program chair because she's an incomparably thoughtful, smart, and generous colleague and friend. Second to Amy Shuffleton for the Literally, <laughs> for the gazillion things she does to make everything for the conference and the society run smoothly. This is her last conference as our executive director, and we owe her a really big debt of gratitude. To the brilliant Winston Thompson for responding to my ideas in the most productive and insightful ways, and to the members of the executive Board, Derek Gottlieb, Annie Schultz and the Conference Management Committee, and the Palmer House staff who found me a stool, um, and all our hardworking standing committees for what they do to sustain our organization. Back there to my husband, Chris, who is always my first most patient and encouraging and best interlocutor and co-thinker. And finally, I want to thank Ken Howe my forever mentor and friend who is here today taking some time out of beautiful and much warmer than Chicago retirement to come to PES. Ken's work and his thinking and his heart still inspire me every day. Okay, so I'm gonna take a seat. So I'm focusing my remarks in this address on contemporary turns toward extremism in politics as linked with a crisis of truth that is harming education, harming civic dialogue and deliberation, and consequently harming democracy, or so I argue. Whatever your political affiliation, 
I don't think I need to convince you about the trouble democracy is in, not just in the United States, but all around the world. Societies undergoing democratic decline usually erode gradually. We begin to see things like the proliferation of disinformation, the facile dismissal of facts, evidence, and the free press, and the degradation of civil, civil liberties. For example, women may lose the right to govern their own bodies or finalize a divorce if they're pregnant. Such attacks on rights are bound up with other worrisome phenomena, such as anti-intellectualism, disproportionate focus on identity politics, and election denial. Books are banned, ideas are repressed, people are silenced. Parents' rights groups lobby policymakers to constrain what students can be taught within public education institutions using euphemisms like prohibiting the teaching of divisive concepts. Undemocratic forces begin to stack city halls, state legislatures, and the judiciary. The slide into authoritarianism may be gradual, but a dystopian near future is not out of the realm of possibility. In education, we have seen the rise of myriad Koch-funded groups like Moms for Liberty or parents defending education, working against teaching critically or even accurately about race, gender, and sexual diversity in schools and in universities. On the extremist left, there's the tendency to suppress dialogue, degrading the principles of democratic engagement in everyday life. As scholars, we have a special responsibility to use our expertise to counter anti-democratic forces like these. In particular, as philosophers of education, we can do what we do so well, analyze the debates, clarify key concepts, and offer recommendations towards democracy sustaining, or perhaps even more importantly, democracy transforming education. This was my aim with my last book. Writing in the early 2010s, I argued for deliberative democratic dialogue across differences, across conflicting beliefs, and across moral disagreements. I sent it off to the publisher in 2015, and it came out early in 2016. Then US politics blew up. I had written Living with Moral Disagreement during a different time and political context. I believed in the promise of deliberative democracy and dialogue, and I still do. But I understand better now that we need to grapple with what to do if people's conflicting beliefs are not only due to their different moral values and worldviews, but also due to untrue, unreasonable, and wrong ideas. In this talk, then, I address the following guiding question. How can universities foster democracy within an extremist, quote-unquote, post-truth political climate? 
the purposes of my paper are threefold. First, I aim to examine how political extremism on the far right and to a much lesser extent on the far left in higher education are harming democratic education and ideals. Second, to argue for the importance of inquiry and truth in university education through the lens of pragmatism. And third, to offer ways that philosophers of education could and should be working on these problems. Now, before anything else, I need to clearly state that in examining far right and far left extremism, I'm not making a both sides kind of argument. The concerning anti-democratic politics on the far right and on the far left are not at all equivalent, neither the intent nor the impact. Although the consequences of extremist left claims and activism harm democratic coalitional politics, extremist right claims and activism endanger people's lives in addition to damaging democracy. To take one urgent example, the extremist far right's lies about transgender people quite literally place them in harm's way, not to mention how they exact a toll on the overall health and well-being of transgender persons. This goes well beyond a political or ideological dispute. Nevertheless, I do worry that in paying justifiable attention to the powerful extremist right, scholars have neglected to critique those on the extremist left. But I believe that it's important to understand the different kinds of dangers to democratic education that we're facing, as they reveal something about the crisis of truth and the diminishing possibility of developing shared understandings. I want to suggest that there's something happening beneath our feet. Competing perspectives on truth, not only the value of truth and how we might search for it, but also whether and how we should adjudicate comp competing truth claims. In often simplistic and overconfident ways, extremists are claiming that individual experiences can never be questioned, regardless of the evidence. This goes against a broadly pragmatist view of truth and knowledge that relies on an explicitly democratic conception of the ends of inquiry. These issues, of course, are close to my heart as a scholar of higher education, and now they feel even more urgent in my role that Terry mentioned as a vice provost, where I am regularly confronted by threats to public universities and engaged in real-time debates over academic freedom and repressive politics. I realize that I'm presenting large and multifaceted problems that we philosophers of education just can't you know, magically solve. And for some, it may not even feel obvious that democracy and the civic education that fosters it are worth fighting for. Scholars have long seen democracy as a particularly challenging form of government because it necessarily relies on the wisdom of the people, which may not always exist. So consider Hannah Arendt's view that relying on the wisdom of the masses 
can be dangerous for pluralist politics and lead to totalitarianism. Although important ideals such as freedom and equality are central to democratic politics, in practice, democracy often does not reflect its ideals. John Dewey notes, quote, regarded as an idea, democracy is not an alternative to other principles of associated life. It is the idea of community life itself. But, he says, democracy is not a fact and never will be, end quote. Along with this pragmatist sense of democracy as a living system of government and community that is reliant on people engaging in informed dialogue, Dewey saw communication as fundamental for free democratic citizens and education as key to learning to communicate in democracy-sustaining ways. Numerous philosophers have followed Dewey in making arguments for democratic education and for the democratic aims of higher education, focusing on educating citizens for informed democratic participation, autonomy and self-determination, and non-discrimination and non-oppression. However, given the current socio-political moment, I attempt to show here that however right-headed these arguments, including my own, have been, they have missed prioritizing and emphasizing a necessary component of democratic education, truth. For how can we educate democratic citizens if nobody knows what's actually true? As Cal Alston asked in her response to the presidential address last year, quote, tell the truth. Can we call it education if we cannot bring ourselves to tell the fucking truth? End quote. My argument herein flows from two key premises. Democracy is in danger and is worth saving. And higher education rightly claims a mission that prominently includes inquiry in the pursuit of truth, civic education, and the preparation of informed democratic participants. Given those, I examine how extremist views are hindering that mission. Universities need to understand how extremism is related to a crisis of truth and to refocus on their academic and social missions. To make my argument, I show how a phenomenon that Lee McIntyre calls post-truth is connected with extremism. Relying on a Deweyan pragmatist democratic notion of truth as tightly linked with inquiry, I argue that we can know truth, though contextual and dynamic, through inquiry. And I hope that my examination can contribute to a course correction that reconnects students faculty and staff to the democratic mission of the university and engages philosophers of education substantively in the effort. Now, before moving to the next section, I should share that these issues have been on my mind and my heart for quite a while. Indeed, they are what has been keeping me up at night. This paper is my attempt to make sense of what's happening. This paper is my invitation to you to think together with me. 
As someone who has spent my entire career working on issues of equality and justice in education, and particularly on studying higher education policies aiming to mitigate racial inequality, I think I've gotten used to critiques from the far right. So what I feel anxious about today is that my challenges to extremist orthodoxies on the far left might be taken out of context and used to erase my scholarly track record. But I suppose my anxiety about this is, is indicative of the very problem that I am endeavoring to tackle. Okay, how political extremism hurts education. In using the term extremism in the context of higher education, I'm referring to anti-democratic political views that lead to unwarranted, unreasonable orthodoxies, fanaticism, or zealotry about contested matters in education. Whether how to teach about climate change, about racism, about what art can be shown in our classes, or about which sports teams transgender students should play on. Although I use the language of far right and left extremes to help illustrate the different kinds of dangers they pose, I don't mean to imply that there exists some simplistic, linear continuum with monolithic groups on each end. What they have in common is that they advocate anti-democratic practices and rigid dogmas which harm the democratic aims of higher education and distract us from the good work of fostering democracy in meaningful ways. Accordingly, this section demonstrates how the extremes on the far right and also, although qualitatively different and less menacing, on the far left are eroding commitments and actions to fulfill the democratic purposes of education. So let me share two examples that illustrate the challenge that we're facing. First, attacks on the university. Quoting Richard Nixon, J.D. Vance, now senator from Ohio, said, quote, the professors are the enemy, end quote, when speaking to the National Conservatism Conference. So I'm just going to repeat that. The professors are the enemy. This sentiment undergirds much of what Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been doing to stymie progress toward democratic aims in Florida's public universities. Consider his Stop Woke Act and more recently, Florida House Bill 999, which would limit public university autonomy and disallow teaching about racial injustice. It violates academic freedom, silences expertise, and chills inquiry. Consider also his call for all public universities to report every expenditure related to diversity, equity, inclusion, and critical race theory. Such surveillance deprofessionalizes university staff and faculty, suppresses equity initiatives, and undermines the university mission. When far-right extremists like Vance and DeSantis use language that frames professors as the enemy, 
or categorize curriculum materials related to racial, LGBTQIA+, and gender justice as divisive, they're perpetuating dangerous untruths. Words matter. What we say to each other has consequences. And what we say in public has consequences. In trying to understand and prevent totalitarianism, Arendt argues that speech is a form of action that is not separate from the person saying it. That is, speech is not only inert words, because when we speak, we are, in fact, acting. Words can have the effect of making things more or less permissible than they were before. And more alarmingly, they can have material consequences to people's lives. What is happening in Florida exemplifies a troubling trend in higher education characterized by far-right extremist state leaders taking actions to control universities and to block educators from meaningfully pursuing the university's mission through teaching accurate content about race or using anti-racist pedagogy. These kinds of authoritarian actions contribute to a sense of what Doris Santoro has called the illusion of schools as democratic places. She builds on Chris LeBron's idea that despite schools' claims to be engaging in democratic education, in practice, they are not pursuing democratic aims for many marginalized students. A similar analysis could be applied to universities and state governments. As extremist leaders have risen to power, certain dogmas and beliefs have moved from the fringes of acceptable social and political views into the mainstream. Radical extremists have been emboldened, feeling entitled, for example, to call out or dox scholars who publish and teach about and against racism, misogyny, cis and heteronormativity, and white supremacy. Scholars and artists and the notion of expertise in general have been attacked and undermined. In a post-truth society, it becomes less likely for citizens to participate in democratic politics in an informed way. When the beliefs over which people disagree are not reasonable or are untrue, it is difficult, if not impossible, to respect them making it exceedingly challenging to engage in democratic dialogue. As Lana Parker points out, quote, the new information environment is characterized by high levels of online engagement, rising tides of myths and disinformation, intentional technological manipulation, and the imperiling of democracy through strains of post-truthism and radicalization, end quote. Parker's points about disinformation and post-truthism echo Arendt's concerns about totalitarian leaders devaluing the difference between fact and fiction. We know that as Liz Anderson discussed yesterday, deep polarization along with widespread civil distrust and disrespect, racism and white nationalism, and a disregard for facts all contribute to a decline of democratic ideals. Robert Talese notes that this kind of deep polarization leads to political echo chambers, making it more difficult for people to respect 
or even just seek to understand opposing views. It also can result in the most extreme on the right and on the left, pressuring their comrades and allies to become even more extreme or else not be considered authentically part of the movement. Successful deliberative democracies value the ability of citizens to disagree with one another and still maintain a mutual respect, which is all the harder when those with whom we disagree are characterized as enemies. Okay, the second example is about counterproductive practices. Let's consider Hamlin University, where an art historian was fired after teaching a survey course on ancient art. By all accounts, the instructor was sensitive to calls to diversify the curriculum and include art from many different cultures. She was aware that some of the artworks would be controversial, but she believed that having students think critically about the controversies was key to studying art history. She recognized that her students had different perspectives and also represented diverse cultures and religions. So she made sure to be respectful of the arts and cultures in her lessons. She let the students know in advance about particularly contested works so that anyone could choose to opt out of viewing them. No one raised any questions and no one opted out. One controversial work included an image of the Prophet Muhammad, which some Muslims believe should never be depicted. After she showed it, a Muslim student complained to the administration and the university president decided to let the instructor go. Although the Hamlin dispute is complex for many reasons, including that it is a conservative fundamentalist portion of Muslims who object to using such art even for educational purposes. In my view, this example is emblematic of counterproductive extremism on the far left because of the campus leader's overreaction leading to the firing of the professor. This kind of epistemic deference seems to undermine the diversity and inclusion goals that ostensibly motivated or justified firing her. The left extremist view here leaves no room for dialogue or learning. Instead, centering an orthodoxy dictating that we should never teach anything that could feel uncomfortable or oppressive to students whose cultures have been historically marginalized, especially at predominantly white universities. Now, we can understand what happened at Hamlin to be an extreme instance of the phenomenon of the politics of deference, described by Olufemi O. Taiwo. The idea of the politics of deference is part of his analysis of the concept of elite capture. That is, how social and political elites have tended to use identity politics and the experiences of people of color for their own benefit rather than for genuine anti-racist aims. The politics of deference specifically refers to, quote, an etiquette that asks people to pass attention resources and initiative to those perceived as more marginalized than themselves and to do so uncritically. 
Key for my arguments here is that it causes elites to, quote, modify interpersonal interaction in compliance with the perceived wishes of the marginalized, end quote. Such deference often does nothing constructive to change the structures that negatively affect minoritized people's actual circumstances. And at its worst, the politics of deference can result in elites patting themselves on the back for how anti-racist they are, and even enabling problematic behaviors among minoritized people who are often also part of the larger group of elite intellectuals. For example, tenure-track faculty of color. In universities, more time may end up being spent on things like doling out committee work equitably than on addressing urgent material needs. This is perverse because it, because it ends up rewarding white elites for the so-called wokeness they perform while continuing to ignore real power differentials. So my concern is that although parts of such deference can be positive within academia, when they're part of changes that result in greater value and respect for those marginalized within the academy, as well as materially distributing work and credit more equitably, it can also be destructive, especially when it serves to poison coalitions and suppress both disagreement and connection within communities of scholars working individually and collectively toward justice. So I agree with Taiwo that, quote, to opt for deference rather than interdependence may soothe short-term psychological wounds, but it does so at a steep cost. It may undermine the goals that motivated the project, and it entrenches a politics that does not serve those fighting for freedom over privilege, for collective liberation over more parochial advantage, end quote. Also troubling in the university context is that the politics of deference and its concomitant performativity can result in an increasing reluctance by faculty members to raise questions or discussion topics related to emerging exclusionary orthodoxies around social justice, much less to take a stand that is different from those orthodoxies. There is often fear attendant to this, such as, for example, fear of being accused of perpetuating white supremacy or racial violence. This fear can result in silence and an environment where scholars may shy away from even talking about social justice-related topics, much less studying them or combating untruths. <laughs> the fear and silence are indicative of what I see as a flaw in the current far-left strategies to fight racial injustice and other injustices within institutions of higher education. Pursuing revolutionary strategies and alienating allies instead of building coalitions to work together toward positive change in the service of justice. By taking teaching positions in the academy, university faculty make a decision to become part of the system of higher education and thus to work within that system to pursue their justice goals. 
The infighting on the left is at best a severe distraction from work in the service of inquiry, truth, and justice. In one of the most insightful essays I've read in a good long while, community leader and activist Maurice Mitchell, the national director of the Working Families Party, boldly argues that environments within many progressive and left social movements and nonprofit organizations are toxic or problematic because of tendencies that include the following. Cynicism about all leaders and institutions, tests of one another's commitment to justice, lack of nuanced understandings often perpetuated by social media, power struggles rather than coalition building, and reactions that are not proportionate to situations. Central to his argument is that a person's identity should not automatically be seen as evidence of some intrinsic, ideological, or strategic legitimacy. Mitchell is concerned that these tendencies are weakening movements and organizations. I contend that similar tendencies and orthodoxies are afflicting academia and universities. Students, staff, and faculty alike are suffering due to environments made toxic not only by extremist right orthodoxies, but also by extremist left dysfunction. Instead of lifting each other up, developing solidarity across common goals and common actions for democracy and justice, we're blaming and shaming each other, calling each other out, and refusing to show each other grace or compassion. Worse, when someone dares speak against the orthodoxies or even raise them for discussion, they may be accused of perpetuating injustice. And identity politics are bound up in this in complex ways. According to Mitchell, it's problematic when, quote, marginalized identity is deployed as a conveyor of a strategic truth that must simply be accepted, end quote. Because people with marginalized identities, as human beings, suffer all the frailties, inconsistencies, and failings of any other human. To act as if this were otherwise is patronizing at best to students, faculty, and staff who are underrepresented within the academy, and racist at worst. It's worth quoting Mitchell one more time. Quote, genuflecting to individuals solely based on their socialized identities or personal histories deprives them of the conditions that sharpen arguments, develop skills, and win debates. We infantilize members of historically marginalized or oppressed groups by seeking to placate or pander instead of being in a right relationship which requires struggle, debate, disagreement, and hard work, end quote. This genuflecting flies in the face of the mutual respect that is constitutive of deliberative democracies. It is an insincere approach to truth-seeking. In higher education, the emergent extremism of students, faculty, and staff on the far left thus may serve to create an environment that is counterproductive to the mission of the university. And in the most alarming instances, like the Hamlin case, historically marginalized individuals' perceptions of harms 
are taken uncritically as truth, leading to disproportionate demands, reactions, and outcomes. Now, the conundrum here, of course, is how to balance honoring persons' accounts of harm with truth-seeking inquiry, and without then taking outsized remedial actions that are disproportionate to the perceived offense. All right, next section is called the nuances in extremism. To conclude this larger section, the Florida and Hamlin examples illustrate the damaging politics and actions that result from extremist orthodoxies. While insightful in a number of contexts, the postmodern critiques of truth and inquiry have gone painfully awry in both directions, as any truth claims seem to be open to question from anyone. The first example, highlighting actions that reflect far-right extremist views, illustrates an entirely unreasonable use of power to silence inquiry, critique, and the pursuit of truth in universities. Such actions have far-reaching effects that dehumanize sorry, dehumanize minoritized persons and destroy decades of progress toward creating more diverse and inclusive campus environments. The second example, highlighting actions that reflect recent far-left extremist positions, illustrates an unreasonable use of power to silence inquiry, trample academic freedom, and prioritize student demands solely because of the student's cultural and religious identity with little to no attention to the context and the substantive content of the complaint. Although there's wrong-headed extremism on the far right and left, let me underscore once more that these extremes are not equivalent. In fact, commentators who say breezily that both sides are wrong gloss over the crucial nuance that the extreme right is much worse for democracy. Let me elaborate on what I mean by worse. The views and actions of extremists on the right often deny people's humanity, erase people's very existence, erode civil rights, threaten lives, and aim to destabilize democratic politics in the service of authoritarian aims. The views of extremists on the left, on the other hand, are of a different scope and scale. By and large, those on the extreme left are critiquing an unjust system that harms minoritized and marginalized people. They're not the ones trying to withhold medical procedures or education from anyone, nor trying to keep anyone from getting married or from voting. It's not the far left's general aims with which I'm taking issue, it's the methods because they can be counterproductive to those crucial aims. Far-left extremists are then sabotaging the social and political coalitions that are needed to make lasting, positive social change. So in this section, I've argued that extremist exclusionary views and actions in universities contribute to the erosion of the democratic purposes of higher education. In the next section, I demonstrate how this argument is connected with the rise of truth decay in recent times. As if the attack from the far right were not challenging enough, 
students, faculty, and staff increasingly are basing truth claims on their experiences and feelings in such a way that they're somehow beyond question. Rather than also relying on scientific and ethical claims to truth that privilege evidence and discussion in conjunction with experience, leading to important intersubjective understandings. University leaders and educators need to understand these problems to be able to refocus on the mission of knowledge production, inquiry, and the pursuit of truth, which foster the education and development of a democratic citizenry. One that is able to engage in deliberation and dialogue across inevitable difference and disagreement, and to understand the fallibility and revisability of evidence and decisions. This deeper understanding would emerge from pragmatist notions of truth and inquiry. So truth matters, pragmatism and inquiry. And I had to get a Dewey photo in somewhere, so there it is. In the US, the crisis of truth is related to a deep disdain for collective inquiry and evidence-based truth claims. This is indicative of a radical individualistic rejection of an intersubjective understanding of truth that can emerge from community inquiry. The crisis goes well beyond merely dealing with opposing worldviews. Outright lies are widespread, calling into question what we know, fueling ridiculous debates, sowing epistemic chaos. What's true? Can we even know? If so, how? And who gets to say? What if we just say it's fake news? For instance, a significant portion of the US electorate believes the lies about election fraud after the 2020 presidential election, despite no evidence. Although there are various causes of and reasons for such beliefs, I can't help but ask what happened or what did not happen in their educations that made it possible for citizens to dismiss evidence and facts and fall for the lies. It seems to me that for tens of millions of people, civic education failed. One reaction to this could be to just give up on civic education. But my reaction is to want to double down on purposeful, meaningful, and inclusive education in the pragmatist tradition, because I think we need it more than ever. Indeed, without the civic education that is offered, things would likely be much worse. We need to recommit to it in primary and secondary education and in university education. To do that, we have to both understand and resist the corrosive political extremes that are getting in the way of the dialogue and deliberation necessary for practicing democracy in the ways that Dewey and other pragmatist scholars call for. The tenets of deliberative democracy are key here, as revisability is an epistemic virtue. Thomas Kuhn's idea of normal science is relevant here as well. It's part of the way scientific inquiry works that it's impossible to know whether a given scientific theory will be eclipsed or overtaken by new discoveries and knowledge, but that doesn't mean it isn't right or true. Relatedly, Dewey invokes the idea that democracy itself is dynamic and it now needs to evolve in a post-truth context. 
McIntyre writes insightfully of this phenomenon post-truth as being strongly linked with authoritarian threats to democracy. Yet I don't want to just passively accept that we're somehow post-truth. Because there exists a crisis does not necessarily mean that truth is a lost cause. Dewey presciently maintained that democracy has to be renewed regularly. However, he, didn't, he did not adequately focus on how to do so when people have divergent views about democracy and the democratic purposes of public education. Elizabeth Anderson suggests that one way is for democracy really to be lived on college campuses. For Dewey, it's meaningful democratic education that helps young people develop the habits needed to participate constructively in inquiry and in remaking their democracy. Habits such as critical discernment, the willingness to question our assumptions, dialogue, deliberation, and responsibility. Such inquiry includes thoughtful reflection and decision-making, along with a good understanding of our social, cultural, and historical context. This reflects the idea that inquiry happens both in scholarly research and in daily life. Under pragmatism, then, epistemic claims that result from this kind of systematic inquiry are connected with what actually happens in lived experiences and the consequences of the inquiry. Cheryl Mizak explains how this kind of inquiry works. Quote, moral and political judgments aim at getting things right, and the best way of achieving or approximating that aim is to engage in reasoning, debate, and the consideration of different perspectives and evidence, end quote. Pragmatist inquiry thus builds on itself. That is, it relies on an iterative process of knowing and knowledge production and communication. Understanding inquiry in this way is important for deliberative democracy because lived experiences and further inquiry can lead to changed or expanded knowledge. In fact, as Talese notes, the pragmatist endorses a specific model of democracy and citizenship for the sake of proper epistemic practice. So, we should view knowledge as both partial and self-correcting. And what this means is that in a deliberative democracy, citizens act on the knowledge that we have with the understanding that we will regularly revise what we know and link it to what we do. This is where extremists go so wrong. Epistemic humility is in short supply. They're not open to inquiry, to the possibility that they might be wrong. Also, and importantly, any discussion of knowledge and truth has to contend with the unjust history of how evidence, quote unquote evidence, has been used in profoundly racist, sexist, homophobic, and anti-Semitic ways to justify bigoted agendas against marginalized groups. In addition, some critics of pragmatism contend that it doesn't take structural inequalities properly into account. So these are things we need to deal with as well. Now the crisis of truth is characterized primarily by the outright lies told by far-right extremists. 
that the 2020 election was stolen or that Democrats eat babies, for example. As well as less dangerous lies about the numbers of attendees at the 2016 inauguration. These lies have made their way onto university campuses through harmful legislation or through far-right extremist speakers on campus. According to McIntyre, part of the problem is that feelings are shaping our beliefs about what is true. The primacy of feelings is reflected in the extreme left's penchant toward disproportionality, where every problem or slight is perceived as the, the worst, the most nefarious possible. Both communication and inquiry break down in the quest to call out and shame others. Mitchell shares the example of an uncomfortable interaction that is then described not only as unacceptable, but as violent. Now this description may be understandable. The reality of the pain and trauma of racial injustice and other injustices sometimes makes it nearly impossible for marginalized persons to feel beyond that trauma. To accept that positive change may be occurring, albeit achingly slowly, or to see how allies may be working authentically for justice. Nevertheless, Mitchell maintains that this proportionality, quote, ultimately weakens meaning dulls analysis and robs us of the ability to acknowledge and process instances of violence and oppression. If everything is violent, he says, nothing really is. If every slight is oppression, nothing is, end quote. Scholars have to be able to get to a place where engaging in discussion, critiquing our colleagues' positions, or even just raising questions is an ordinary part of university life. Truth has to be arbitrated by deliberative democratic principles, reciprocity, accountability, publicity, along with scientific and ethical inquiry and evidence. I propose that while honoring truth claims based in part on people's experiences, we seek to understand these experiences pragmatically as a source of collective knowledge and as part of a broader process of inquiry rather than as the end point of that inquiry. So in conclusion, <laughs> I, that, that's so good, I know. <laughs> There are good reasons for questioning grand narratives and capital T truth, but the insistence on the contingency of all truth, which emerged out of postmodern thought, has, perhaps unintentionally, led to a dangerous relativism and science denial, and to Orwellian destabilization of both capital T truth and little t truth. Postmodern deconstruction and the politics I of identity have weakened democratic education and in some ways fostered the rise of post-truth extremism. Higher education cannot successfully pursue its central mission of knowledge production and the pursuit of truth under these conditions. 
If scholars and students feel disrespected and threatened by those who disdain universities and professors, and if communities of scholars themselves cannot model democratic discourse and behaviors, how can we expect students to engage in the practice of democratic life through their education? When those on the side of equity and justice focus so much energy and labor on disagreements with others also working for equity and justice, rather than on building coalitions to combat destructive and authoritarian movements on the far right, what should we as philosophers do to foster the democratic aims of higher education? I believe that philosophers of education not only should, but are equipped, well-equipped, to contribute centrally to shaping the direction of higher education, serving as a conscience, as apologists for meaningful and just democratic politics, and as partners with other education scholars across disciplines to champion an education system that explicitly nurtures democratic values. This will require an active stance to counteract the decline of truth, which is linked to the general undervaluing of the humanities in academia and in education schools in particular. We need to be advocating for more informed public discussions about knowledge, truth, and what makes for a reasonable perspective versus what is demonstrably false. This focus on truth does, doesn't mean that I'm claiming that we need to be value-free or neutral in our research. That's not possible. But it does mean that I'm in favor of systematic inquiry in which researchers and scholars are aware of how values and beliefs affect the inquiry enterprise. We need to build both intellectual and political coalitions toward these goals. I've argued that a pragmatist view of inquiry might allow us to rethink our understandings about identity and experience and the democratic aims of inquiry. Democracy is imperfect, but when at its best, I can think of no better way of organizing the university and our social lives in the context of pluralism and disagreement. So let me end with a story that illustrates the tensions that we'll have to navigate in building coalitions across difference. Writer David Troyer is the child of an Ojibwe mother who grew up on a reservation and a white father who immigrated to the United States to escape the Nazis. Troyer grew up between two distinctive worldviews. His mother's perspective that the US would take any opportunity to harm its marginalized citizens, and his father's view that America had saved his life. Troyer explains, quote, in order to survive, I needed to hold within me two opposing ideas. I needed to believe in my mother's version of things, that America will always try its best to break us down. I also needed to hold on to my father's vision that America can nurture and sustain us. This country, Troyer says, is a terrible country, and this country is not, end quote. Maybe Troyer's story spoke to me because as the child of immigrants myself, a Latina mom and a Holocaust refugee dad, 
we navigated similar tensions within my family. But I think it also spoke to me because we scholars can learn from the way Troyer reconciles living with the contradictions in his family. We have to learn to live with the university's spaces of conflict and tension and compromise, and within the complex understanding that the university is terrible, and it is not. We have to learn to better navigate the complex intermingling of extremist views that are undermining the university's mission and degrading truth and democracy, and to celebrate what is beautiful and valuable about the truth-seeking university as we work from within to nurture democracy and justice. Thank you. Before I get started, let me just say a very quick uh, uh, note of thanks to Michelle for this wonderful, uh, really uh, lovely invitation to uh, respond to her work. I'll just share a very quick story that some of you may have heard uh, in a previous context. But, um, you know, as an undergraduate, I studied philosophy, religion, sociology, and uh, found myself with a, a sort of a mix of questions that led me to the study of higher education. And in my graduate work, my early graduate work, I found uh, that the field of higher education, though uh, engaging with issues that I cared very much about, sort of engaging in those issues in ways that didn't uh, really speak to me as, uh, you know, a, a normatively minded uh, young scholar until... I stumbled upon a book called Embracing Race, Why We Need Race-Conscious Educational Policy, and I was taken by this person's uh, 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 rigorous and probing work, uh, and not only was I sort of moved by the work, but I was uh, moved by the recognition that there was a group of people engaged in the type of work that uh, I recognized myself as wanting to do, philosophy of education. So without Michelle's work, <laughs> I very literally would not be here uh, with you as a member of this community. Um, you know, at that time, I could not have, well, I, I certainly envisioned that you'd be president of PES, that's true. <laughs> um, but I could not have envisioned that I would find myself in the fortunate uh, set of circumstances that would allow me to be uh, a respondent to Michelle's work in this capacity. So uh, I just want to take a moment to sort of acknowledge that for my past self. Uh, this is something of, a, of, an, of an honor and a real treat. Okay. Now, uh, let me, um, with the time that I have here, engage uh, uh, Michelle's really good work. I, she promises that I'm going to offer uh, a, a response to it all, um, but uh, uh, my response is incomplete because there's so much here uh, to consider. So my uh, response is entitled, Education Within a Damaged Democracy, a few diagnoses and definitions. 
In her stirring presidential address, Democracy, Extremism, and the Crisis of Truth in Education, Michelle Moses engages in an enormous yet inescapable task. Her work in making sense of the causes of and desirable responses to growing fractures within our fragile democracy requires grand scope of vision and patient analyses. Moses does much to advance this work by pressing against the usual boundaries of group membership, that is to say, uh, progressive versus conservatives, holding to account those with whom she shares considerable values and goals. Rather than resting in defined roles, um, this sober-minded engagement with our collective problems models the distinctive contributions of philosophy to addressing that which ails our democracy. While I'm deeply appreciative of the richness and breadth of Michelle's work here, I cannot, bound as I am by the limits of this context, meaningfully engage with all portions of the wonderfully nuanced points that she offers to us. Thankfully, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with much of Moses' assessments, and rather than press against the details uh, of her arguments, my response endeavors to take seriously her provocative invitation to philosophers. How can and how should we, as philosophers of education, understand the crises that Moses has described? What role do philosophers and does education play in creating and correcting these states of affairs? In the response ahead, I wish to consider how philosophers of education might initiate some productive work on those questions. And again, it's just, uh, you know, initiating uh, some productive work on those questions. In this, I wish to focus on conceptualizations of the very inquiry and the inquirers that rest at the center of Moses's good project. As much of uh, Moses' address focuses on how persons might inquire well with one another, I believe that the epistemic and social political analyses here will be helpful as we consider the ways in which they meaningfully intersect with a democratic project. In some, my remarks are offered in the service of contributing to additional analyses that might sit alongside Moses' careful work on democracy sustaining education. So my first section here is entitled Epistemic Diagnoses and Desiderata. First, I'd like to begin by pointing to some of the difficulties in diagnosing those occasions where our epistemic practices are vulnerable. While it might seem easy to consistently point to those moments within which uh, the lines between fact and falsehood have been undesirably eroded, I'd like to suggest that these instances, egregious though they are, might be an extension of issues that are far more difficult to reliably, to reliably identify. For example, given that we wish to avoid occasions um, of falsehood circulating as fact, what ought we and others do when the very status of fact and falsehood is under contention. The reasonableness, and here I'm, I'm, I think, invoking the same politically liberal traditions that undergird uh, my reading of much of uh, Moses' analysis, the reasonableness of a disagreement may seem to be an immediately legible and reliable criterion for navigating those cases within which multiple parties hold competing conceptions of what ought to be identified as settled fact. 
Indeed, in my own scholarship, uh, and this is work that I've done with uh, uh, Joy Dangora Erickson and others, I've invoked reasonableness often, and I remain committed to its use as a standard for boundaries of discussions under pluralistic circumstances. But even though reasonableness is attractive as a standard for sidestepping a descent into the relativism that seems to recur across various both sides approaches to pedagogy and politics, I encourage us to recognize that reasonable disagreement likely exists about what constitutes reasonableness. In short, I'm calling attention to a vexing problem of action-oriented invocation of, a good, of good ideal theorizing applied to our non-ideal context. And it's a problem that philosophers of education would do well to directly address. Experts like Darren Chetty have written about how identity-based assumptions and his analysis of rightly drawn attention to uh, racialized norms and perceptions, how these identity-based assumptions can be smuggled into seemingly neutral conceptualizations of reasonableness in discussion-based educational contexts. Identifying that reasonable disagreements about fact ought to be allowable in our deliberative spaces, for example, educational institutions and other straightforwardly civic uh, contexts, is only the beginning of a complex deliberation in itself. Moreover, presuming that we, as philosophers of education, will make or have already made meaningful strides in this diagnostic work, we might also benefit from being attentive to the ways in which reasonable disagreements, reasonable disagreements can, in aggregation, create the types of impoverished epistemic circumstances that we might wish to avoid. That is, although an individual statement or a question posed in a philosophy course or at a scholarly conference right, might represent a reasonable view, that view could possibly intersect with and interact with other reasonable views to create an unreasonable epistemic context within which, though no individual might endorse the view, within which the community's stance becomes an unreasonable one. Moses' good work rightly directs our attention to the complex issues entailed in the pursuit of knowledge, truth, and legibly justified standards for reasonable epistemic practices. And so my comments here are meant to sort of expand that further. The next section here is entitled Engineering a Conceptualization of Inquiry. So next, having identified some potential uh, diagnostic challenges, I'd like to turn attention to further epistemic matters of the relationship between inquiry and truth. I wish to suggest that the prioritization of a particular account of inquiry, one of potential many, may be limiting democracy-sustaining interactions. And given this, I think it is wise to label and demarcate what we take inquiry to accomplish so that we might have greater analytical clarity about what we intend in pedagogical and political contexts and projects. So inquiry is often defined in the service of new knowledge about truth. But perhaps this view, helpful though it might be in some contexts, perhaps even most contexts, right? Uh, but this view might be a source of frustration when deeply held values or apparently foundational facts are invoked. Perhaps inquiry into, say, gender or race threatens members of the right and the left when understood as an attack on known truth 
which will be replaced by new, woke, or alternative uh, truths. To be clear, I don't wish to, success, I don't wish to suggest a uh, fuzzy-minded sort of relativism here. Uh, truth exists. Let me be clear about that. Truth exists. Uh, and uh, truth is valuable across various physical, social, historical, moral, and other categories. Rather, I want to point to how high the stakes might feel, how high the stakes might feel in a democracy when inquiry is understood as only about settling and unsettling truth. The motivation to monitor inquiry, that is, you know, mo motivation, for example, by uh, legislating curricular uh, or censoring uh, unpalatable views, um, the motivation to monitor inquiry might be less surprising to us under these vulnerable terms. Again, these affective uh, sort of responses here, uh, given the, the height of the stakes. So I say perhaps we might make meaningful contributions to curbing some of those motivations uh, by improving the concepts used and the ways in which we engage with them. Epistemologist Avery Archer, I think, is helpful here in identifying that inquiry is not always or only aimed at producing knowledge or justified true belief. On Archer's epistemic improvement account, the constitutive aim of an inquiry into some question Q is found in improving one's, uh, the constitutive, whoops, I'll start over. On Archer's uh, epistemic improvement account, the constitutive aim of inquiry into some question Q is found in improving one's epistemic standing relative to Q. Archer's account is particularly useful in identifying the value of inquiry that does not produce new knowledge, on the one hand, and inquiry into those questions about which one already has a strong sense of confidence in holding a complete answer to that question Q, right? So it's not only about uh, 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 truth, but it's about our relationship uh, uh, and our epistemic standing to uh, that truth. Although Archer does not argue in this way, I would, I would assert that an epistemic improvement account of inquiry potentially opens possibilities for members of the political right and political left in the ways that Moses has invoked to, on the one hand, appreciate the value of inquiry even when ambiguity about a question, for example, a matter about which there is deep and but reasonable disagreement, has not been resolved, and on the other hand, to accept inquiry into matters that seem settled without perceiving that inquiry to, necessar to necessarily entail a denial of factual knowledge or to be an assault on deeply held values. Thus, this account represents a potential avenue towards an improved epistemic community within which members more readily resist the affective states contributing to the ills that Moses has so rightly described. That the rhetoric of many university communities already aligns with this view of inquiry is perhaps promising. Still, I want to be careful to note that creating analytic possibilities or engineering a concept towards just ends does not ensure specific political action or outcomes. Sadly, a good philosophical argument is not guaranteed to motivate all actors. This is the great sadness of my life. Um, though it may seem necessary to provide good analyses of these problems, those analyses seem unlikely to be sufficient for progress on these issues. So how then might we ask ourselves, so how then, we might ask ourselves, should philosophers of education proceed 
So my next section here is called Strategic Philosophical Responses. And in some sense, this is um, sort of meant to engage us as uh, uh, educators as well. Um, having offered some definitional and epistemological comments, my remarks now turn to some of the social and political limitations that philosophers of education ought to consider as they work towards strategic pursuit of the good goals that Moses has identified. Under ideal conditions of reason-giving and responsiveness, philosophers would uh, simply offer analysis that would move our interlocutors to reconsider their values, their interpretations, their motivations, and their actions, but we labor under non-ideal conditions, and practical obstacles complicate the straightforward efficacy of our philosophical work. So as we think about ourselves as educators who are taking this philosophical work and applying uh, uh, that work towards um, uh, uh, our fellows in this democratic project, I think we ought to be somewhat uh, strategic. So I cannot here provide full analyses of all of the factors, but perhaps the biggest impediment to the work ahead is that there exists a range of actor types each of which likely call for specific response from philosophers of education working in support of democratic norms. The actors might be understood in reference to, among other things, their intentions and their capacities. Relatively ideal actors might be those well-intentioned persons with the capacities, including willingness, to appreciate good reasons and revise their positions in accordance to our arguments. These actors, if they're contributing to democratic ills, perhaps need little more than our philosophical analyses to correct their courses. As they might be persuaded by legible arguments in many cases, the work of the philosopher is largely that of translation of two nuanced arguments into more legible formulations. But of course, some less ideal actors are quite likely to resist even those sort of tailored responses. Within this category, one might imagine actors who are holding prioritized yet private justifications, say from a comprehensive uh, view of the good, that are obscured from their also sincerely held articulated public reasons, even as a philosophically rigorous response to those reasons does little to shift the actor's social and political commitments, right? So they've got these privately held beliefs, these public uh, articulations, we're responding to the public articulations, they're not budging, we're wondering why, right? While these are not necessarily bad actors, their stances do make it difficult for philosophers to present and or translate analyses in ways that can actually motivate change. For these actors, I would say that philosophers must first engage in the difficult and discerning efforts to determine the germane perspectives to which they are to respond, without, of course, becoming paternalistic or condescending in assuming uh, the uh, fact of and the uh, power of these privately held reasons. Finally, philosophers, to my mind, cannot overlook the category of more straightforwardly bad actors. Characteristic of this category are those actors with a relatively deep degree of insincerity regarding their articulated responses and an unwillingness to respond to arguments that engage their privately held reasons. So this is a second version of that category that I just uh, previously mentioned. These actors are, in a sense, unavailable to be moved by even the best of our arguments and our analyses. For many of these actors, the deleterious consequences for democracy, as described by Moses, are not an incidental byproduct of their actions, but are the very motivations for them. 
continually offering justifications or making practical concessions to these actors as a part of a cooperative project, to my mind, seems unwise, as they are inauthentic participants in that important democratic work. Here, a task for philosophers might be to better engage others in reliable and specific recognition of these bad actors and their practices, perhaps, amongst other things, in refining shared standards of reasonableness in public discourse, as I mentioned earlier. In all of this, I have suggested that we would do well to know our students before we prepare our lessons. In my conclusion here, uh, I just want to say that my response to Moses' splendid invitation, um, that in my response I've begun to articulate one philosopher's replies to the question that ought to drive our work as philosophers of education within a damaged democracy. Indeed, there's much outstanding work in our field that replies to these matters in an alternative and encouraging ways. Uh, people like Sarah Stitzlein, Paula McAvoy, um, some previous and forthcoming work by North America's best colleague, Brian Warnick, uh, engages with this. And so, to my mind, as ever, I look forward to learning from Michelle Moses and all of you as we engage with answering the call that she's offered in this presidential address. Thank you. And that concludes this extra-long episode of Thinking in the Midst. We are very grateful to Michelle and Winston not only for their excellent addresses, but also for taking the time to talk with us about their crafting. I also want to acknowledge Terry Wilson's thoughtful and generous introduction as well, making especially sure not to omit the all-important article in the name of Winston's institution. Please subscribe to the show wherever you listen, and leaving us a rating and a review helps us to reach more people. To contact Kara and I together, email is the best way, thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear people's thoughts on what we're doing. Our next episode also comes from the Philosophy of Education Society Conference and features reflections on the life and work of Nell Noddings. In the meantime, on behalf of Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb. We'll see you next time. <laughs>